If you've been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, um, and from the last time that I preached, uh, from the last passage, we saw Jesus as king, that he is ruler over everything. And yet you would think that with such a grand title that the world would function a little bit differently. You know, we don't imagine things like wars happening. We don't imagine things like poverty. There's so many, th- so many things where we witness the brokenness of humanity. And yet, Jesus says, I rule. I'm the ruler of all things. How do you make sense of it all? How do you make sense of the chaos? And what I believe today's passage does for us, it helps us to get a better perspective on not just the brokenness of our world, but the glory of who God really is. And so we turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 13. Uh, And for those who are able, can you please stand and rise with me for the reading of God's word today? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to them, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what, he, what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us. As the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer here? Lord, as we come before you, and as we live in the world as it is, it's confusing a lot of times. We opened up today's worship asking, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, because sometimes I really cannot see what you're doing. And that's all we just want to be able to see. What are you doing? Who you actually are. And so, Lord, as we come before you, give us spiritual eyes to be able to see you, Jesus, what that really looks like for ourselves in our personal lives and our walks with you. Meet us here in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was shocked and alarmed to find that Israel is in the state state of war. 
And I was looking at all the photos of, you know, the, 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 ter- uh, the uh, extremist groups and everything that they were doing, uh, kidnapping uh, old grandmas and little children. And it was such a disturbing scene to witness all these things, you know. I lifted up a quick prayer. It's too easy to just get so um, hardened, like I'm not that surprised by it but I didn't want to be in that state of heart and mind. These are real people dealing with real things. And you think about this world. What helps us to get by? In the chaos, the chaos of everything. Because for us personally in our lives, you know, we, we can make play this little comparison game of my life is not as uh, bad as that, uh, the, the situation over there. But the thing is, there's always a war going on in our own selves. The chaos that we feel, the relationships that are stripped broken, the pain, the mourning and grief we feel sometimes. What carries us through? You know what I believe it is? It's our human ability to hope. It's our ability to look into the future. That's what I believe makes us human. I mean, think about it. No other creature on this planet, no animal really thinks about the future like we do. Sure, maybe squirrels, uh, whatever, chipmunks, they, they may store acorns for the future, to, but, but that's just for the means of the future of survival. But they don't think about the future like hoping. For some reason, only humans do that. Either there is a major flaw in our genetic sequencing here, or there truly is a creator God who weaves into our hearts an eternal longing for something better. There just might be a glorious future beyond what our mere mortal eyes can see. That's the hope we're filled with. This is the hope that Jesus brings and gives us a compelling view of the future in this event that we call the transfiguration so that we can navigate through so many of the tough challenges in our lives. And we're going to break this event into three things, three things for us to consider about the glorious future that Jesus presents for us. One is revival. Two is a sense of reality. And last of all, three, where do we get the resilience? Let's look at the first part, revival. Transfiguration literally means to change. And Jesus literally changes in form in front of Peter, James, and John as he takes them up to this mountain. And his clothes, Mark notes this, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could ever bleach them. It's such an odd detail when you think about it. Because when you think about all the historical events, no one ever uh, thinks about George Washington and what were his clothes like back then. Everyone thinks about what happened or what kind of accomplishments were achieved. Yet for some reason, Mark here, he's so focused on what Jesus' clothes look like. All the other gospel writers, they talk about how Jesus' face glowed here. But Mark is hung up on these clothes. I kind of think of... uh, 
I think about this detail in this way, that Jesus' glory is so magnificent that he transforms even the unordinary things such as raggedy, raggedy tunics to be changed as it touches the shine of his, the, the, the skin of his glory. That even the unordinariness of everything becomes transformed. I feel like that's maybe perhaps why Mark is emphasizing this. And we have to consider this whole event. It comes out of nowhere. And so many of the commentators, they're perplexed by this entire event. Some people have postulated or guessed that maybe perhaps this is the true resurrection story that Jesus was talking about. Or others think that this is really Jesus' second coming. These are all understandable hypotheses, but perhaps there's something different here we have to consider what just happened in the previous verses. Jesus told his disciples that, this, that the ruler of all the, uh, all the earth, the king of all kings, will be killed and after three days rise again. The son of man will be rejected. And you, my disciples, if you're going to follow me, I want you to do the same thing as I do. Carry your crosses. And follow me. Jesus knew what a disheartening statement he was making. He knew. He knew probably the dire discouragement that the disciples probably feel as they hear this. You know, I'm, um, my parents, they, uh, w- um, wanted me to learn piano when I was younger. And, um, Every time I went to a lesson, I hated every minute of piano playing. I hated every lesson. I hated time spent with the piano teacher. And every time these lessons would come, I would protest like crazy to my parents. Don't let me go to this. Right? And so as I'm protesting over and over again, they finally got so tired of my complaining. They said, fine, you can quit. And so a victory for me at that moment. But as I got older, I discovered Ray Charles playing the keys while he's blind. It's the most gangster thing I've ever seen. I saw a clip of Yurima play like, like this somber melody. I never thought piano could look so amazing and cool. And I turned to my parents and said, why did you let me quit? Now it's too late for me now. And if only they showed me the glory up front of what I could look like. It might be a different story for me today. I could probably be able to play on the keys. This is what I think Jesus is doing here. That in all the the call to discipleship, to carry the cross, Jesus says, wait a minute though, I want you to look at what you shall become. Glorious. In radiant splendor and glory. He's encouraging his disciples because he knows, he knows we'll have our doubts. He knows we will have our moments where we want to quit. And so here he is giving a mountaintop experience. And in this experience, in this mountaintop experience, you find two Old Testament figures of Elijah and Moses. And what you have to understand about both these figures here, and in places like 1 King 19 here, when Elijah is discouraged, He goes up to a mountain by himself, and he is ready to quit. 
He tells God, God, I'm the only faithful one. All the other prophets, they're killed and they're rejected. I, like, I'm done, basically. I give up. What does God do in 1 Kings 19? He reminds Elijah of his glory. Shakes the whole mountain. A wind comes through. And God just speaks to whisper to tell Elijah, keep going. You look at a figure like Moses in uh, Exodus 24. Where does God meet Moses? On Mount Sinai. Why? Because he's confirming his covenant promises with his people. And as God invites Moses to come up, what happens? A giant cloud, glory cloud, covers the mountains. And what does God do? He speaks to Moses. The same pattern here is happening with Jesus. That there is some glory cloud that overshadows Jesus and all the disciples as Moses and Elijah are there. And what does God do? He speaks. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. You know what Jesus is, or what God is doing here? He is affirming his own son, but he's also affirming his own people. It's an encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement because we live in such a hypercritical world. When nothing is ever good enough, the subliminal message that we all seem to take in is, I'm not enough. That's why you find things on Reddit where the subfeed, or that's a, like a decade old forum where people post pictures of themselves and they ask this simple question, am I ugly? That's the subform, like that's the Reddit post there. For 10 decades, this has been going on. Give me your honest opinion about this. The question even isn't even placed in the positive. Am I beautiful? It's, am I ugly? And the thing is, you and I, I, I hope not, we're not posting our pictures on this site, but the kind of, but isn't this the kind of heart that we possess at times? A dis, a tortured dissatisfaction with ourselves. And yet God responds to us in this momentous event to let us know in Christ you are God's beloved child. No matter what you've accomplished, no matter how much you've failed, in Christ you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. That can never change. You can never be too encouraging. It's the encouragement that's supposed to revive our souls here. Like, I'm not just talking about saying generic nice things just for the sake of being nice. But when you notice a moment uh, of encouragement that's endearing to you, it's, it's important for you to mention those things because we all need encouragement in this life. So I'll be the first one to start. You know, a lot of people, they, they say that uh, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the fight in the dog that really matters. And this is how I feel about New Life Fremont. We're scrappy. For nine months, we've uh, kept church going. And yes, it's God, but it's also God working through us. And I thought that, I thought it's also cool that age gaps here don't really matter as much. It's just the simple fact that we all come here breaking bread together and in need of God together. The fact that we still have people cleaning up after church, I find that to be an encouragement. These are all encouraging things. 
We're still getting people coming, newcomers to come. I, I, I don't know why sometimes, but we still get them. And we would have ma- imagined that a year ago. But here we are. We all need some sort of encouragement, all of us. We need to express these moments because it's the very things, it's these kind of things that help us to get through reality. Which brings us to the second point here. Because in reality, we face global warming causing storms of strange places, of heat waves, these random heat wave in Fremont, uh, you know, murking up the airwaves. Schools, they have active shooter drills. And now as a normal routine now, politics are fragmented. We create solutions, right? We think like AI is going to be the new thing that's going to fix everything. But the thing is, we create solutions, but we just also create new problems. See, these new problems, they all come up. They make it seem like the world is getting worse and worse. But in reality, uh, but are the things really getting worse? Or is it that we have a bias towards the good old days? See, this is what Peter does here. Peter sees this whole moment, right? Glory cloud, Moses and Elijah appear, and he's terrified with the disciples. And out of just, you know, just saying something for the sake of saying, he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are all here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know what Peter is doing there? He's trying to capture and preserve the good old days. He's trying to preserve the good old days, trying to make this moment last as long as possible. See, this act of setting up tents is actually a pagan practice to venerate the gods. And, and Peter, obviously, he wasn't trying to idolize uh, Elijah, Moses, or Jesus, but this is just all he knew. Good intentions, wrong practice. Peter just wanted to preserve the good old days. In his mind, he's thinking, if I can just capture this glorified state of Jesus and him with Elijah and Moses, who knows what we can accomplish See, there's this, um, this made me think, this whole ordeal made me think about professional athletes who, when they get older, they're on the brink of a retirement. And it's always, um, mixed feelings when I see it. Uh, one of my favorite athletes, his name is the Korean zombie here. I don't, I don't know if the photo is going to show up. Um, but he was my absolute favorite because of just his tenacity to go at people and his fights were always exciting to watch. And this was his last matchup with Max Holloway. And, you know, I've been, I grew up watching so many Rocky boxing movies that as Korean zombie was fighting Max Holloway, uh, you know, Korean Zavi was just getting beat up left and right, but I was thinking about Rocky, how, you know, the dramatic music goes up, and maybe he might make it through. Maybe he might get a victory. But he got knocked out. And then this was his last fight, and he, he, he retired. And I thought, man, this is so sad. But one writer put it this way about when athletes retire, that how important it is for us to see this, to be able to witness the humbling of great athletes, to see them endure it with dignity and grit, even as their outcome carry them further and further away from former glory, might be one of the greatest things sports has to teach us. And that's the thing about sports and life. There's a difference between demonstrating resilience and, uh, and toiling in self-delusion is not an easy thing to parse. 
I thought it was well put. Isn't this the reason why we try so hard to preserve our own glory days, the good old days, while we're still young? We want to be able to have it all. We want everything. But rather, God is teaching us, rather than to you can't have it all, but you can't appreciate that you have anything at all. See, in this blink of an eye, Jesus turns back to his normal state. No more illuminating clothes. No more Moses or Elijah in sight. A glorious moment, gone. As they go down the mountain, he tells his disciples, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anything what happened. This epic event, I want you to keep it to yourselves. It's so countercultural to our, you know, our culture today where we really have to just advertise everything that's happening in our lives. And yet Jesus says, I don't want anyone to know about this. Makes no sense. Everyone in Silicon Valley, uh, they would, they would probably say, you know what? Do what's most convenient. Do what's uh, most groundbreaking. Do all those things. If it's convenient, if it makes your life more comfortable, do it. Jesus opts to go back to his regular body, unglorified, able to be wounded, able to experience sorrow. It's countercultural to everything that we believe. He has a cheat code to display his power. Then all the nations will bow down at his feet with no question. Yet Jesus chooses the path of suffering and death. That's what he tells his disciples. Makes no sense to our efficient and result-oriented minds. Because if you and I were in the same position, we choose power. We choose glory. So why this? Henry Nouwen, he put it this way, and I'll share the quote with you here. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own our lives than to love life. I think what he expressed is that uh, what is what is love but a path of love and uh, death and suffering at times? I have this good family friend of mine, husband and wife. They go to Ivy League schools professionally. They're they're like elite. They're at the top of what they do. And uh, I I got the chance to just visit them this past year, and um, they're talking about how they opened up a sandwich shop. And so here is this uh, uh, high, uh, highly esteemed doctor and lawyer, and they're just making sandwiches for everyone. And she tells me all the crazy stories about, you know, customers that always complain about odd things. And, and when, the, when certain people use the bathroom, there's like feces on the floor and the, and the walls, and they're having to scrub it up all the time. Uh, conflicts with uh, how many breads to really make. And, you know, so many little things that, that pile up and stresses her out. And, she, and what I noticed about her is that I, I wonder, you know, why are you doing all these things? And it's for this one simple reason. They have a son. He has autism. And they want him to be able to work, uh, find, uh, find work uh, for him to really develop. And they're willing to suffer in this way. 
just for him. And even though she like uh, talks about all the craziness of running the sandwich shop, the one thing that stood out to me is how she constantly repeated, the Lord's been teaching me. But the Lord has been teaching me. I took this to heart. The Lord has been teaching me. Perhaps for Jesus, what is most important is not how accomplished we can be, but how we depend on God and how we love. There's a death and resurrection to everything. Granted, it's painful, but there's also hope that brings about resilience, which is the last point here. Theologian Martin Luther, he once said that our approach to knowing God is according to two ways. We either have a theology of glory or we have a theology of the cross. And he said, when we think about the theology of glory, it's about minimizing difficulty and painful things in our lives. If you just have enough faith and willpower to just get through it all, then nothing can stand in your way. You can triumph over everything. But Luther says, in reality, we live in a theology of the cross. And in his words, he says, God hidden in suffering. Therefore, He prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. In other words, we see God through our suffering, not without it. And this is why Jesus says in verse 13, Elijah has already come and they did whatever they pleased with him. See, the context here is that they thought in the disciples' mind, when Elijah comes back, he's going to make everything okay again in this world. And what Jesus says about Elijah is the fact that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure, that he came to pronounce that the kingdom of God is here. And yet, what what did John the Baptist endure? Death. Death. That's the thing. Jesus says, Elijah has come, you know, John the Baptist, who's announcing restoration of all things. And yet it's only through the means of death and suffering. Here's what the theology of glory looks like in our lives a lot, a lot of times. A lot of times, this is what I, um, this is what I realized about my bunny is that bunnies, they, when they get hurt with a broken rib or a sickness, they'll pretend like they're fine because they're prey animals and they don't want to show any signs of weakness because then they become easy targets. That's theology of glory for you. So a lot of us, we, we say things like, oh, big kids don't cry because you're not supposed to. Or it's unprofessional for us to be weeping. It's not professional. Or how many times have we found ourselves crying over tragedy and we say automatically, I'm sorry. What's there to be sorry about? Is it possible we have this idea of theology of glory? Just push through. Just be strong. Just have more faith. When really Jesus is saying, it's okay to weep. It's okay to grieve. Guys, I want church to be the safest place where we can cry. I really do. Life is crazy. It's overwhelming at times. The theology of the cross sees suffering for what it actually is. 
that we are powerless, and yet we still trust in a faithful God. See, the reason why Moses and Elijah showed up here, the text says in verse 4 that they were talking. What exactly were Moses and Elijah talking about with Jesus? You know what they were doing? Moses, he led the people out of Egypt. It was a great exodus. Elijah, he escaped death and was caught up into the glories of heaven. It's like a reunion where they talk about the great things that that happened. They're reminiscing of this. And as Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus, they say, oh, no, 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 but you, Jesus, you're about to pull the greatest exodus ever. We can't wait to see it. You're about to make the greater exodus when Jesus finally wipes away every tear and finally restores everything to be good again. Until that day, we live under the theology of the cross. The only way out of suffering is not to remove it, is not to avoid it, it's not to numb it. The only way out is through. The only way out is through. There's this children's hymn I grew up singing, and it goes something like this. It's about how Jesus loves me, this I know. I sing this every night for my kids before bed, hoping that one day the songs and the lyrics will mean something to them. I shared about how when Kathy's grandpa passed away, that right before this moment, uh, all the families gathered together. And they wanted to be there um, till his final breath. And one of the things that they did together is that they worshiped together. And the song that they sang was this one here. That Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I found this endearing because it was a reminder how we're all brought into this world crying as infants. But we also leave the world in the same way, with tears, just perhaps not ours. And C.S. Lewis once said this, that the pain I feel now is the happiness I felt before. And that's the deal. See, the theolo- it's, only, it's only the theology of the cross that allows you to have joy with the sorrow at the same time. Joy and sorrow meet at the cross. You know why? Because the sadness and grief we may feel now, yes, it's the happiness we had before, but joy is the guaranteed hope that Jesus will lead us out into the greater exodus where we will finally arrive in glory, where we no longer hear news about wars. Will there be no longer a fight over Jerusalem? Because the heavenly Jerusalem shall descend upon the earth. And Jesus will open up those gates for us. And the only way that this is guaranteed is only because at the cross, Jesus empties himself of all his glory so that we might be able to enter in to heaven's gates. Friends, this is how we have resilience. This is where we get the hope. Never forget to think about what a glorious future you have 
despite what you're going through. The only way out is through, but God is through uh, with you through all of it. And that's the great comfort we have. Let me pray for us.